to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goal. If you're anything like Sayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Meg Epstein. She's a real estate developer and has over a decade of experience creating efficient modern lifestyles for people where it matters the most, their homes and their neighborhoods. She founded CA South in 2016, and the firm has expanded beyond residential condos to include multifamily, mixed-use industrial and office projects, as well as Opportunity Zone funds. She's been involved in the development and construction of over 1 million square feet of residential and commercial real estate and representing over $780 million to date. So Meg, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. So Meg, if you could please start off by sharing, you know, just a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate. Sure. So I have a bit of a non-conventional background because we manage several private equity funds here, but I I started on the construction side uh, when I graduated in 2008 from college. And so I... um, Went to UCLA and I got my first job building homes around campus for a general contractor. So that was a very enlightening experience. And I learned a lot about building and schedules and project management. And then when I moved to Nashville, I wanted to get into the commercial side because the high-end residential side just wasn't the same market as California. You can't sell homes for you know 20 and $30 million. And And so I branched into the commercial side of things. And that's kind of where we've been playing the last five years. So when you moved to Nashville, was it primarily for business or was it for a personal reason as well? Yeah, it was personal. So my husband was from San Francisco, but he moved here. So So. I guess when you guys moved to Nashville and you're looking at the market itself, can you share a little bit about how the market compares in Nashville versus where you're originally from in California? Sure. Well, I wasn't heavy on the residential side in California, so it wasn't as much on the commercial side. But from my standpoint, the Nashville market has just been totally booming. So many people moving here, whereas I feel like a lot of people are moving from California. And so I kind of, I mean, the name of my company is California South, CA South. So I try to take the certain design aesthetic that's in California and and the level of professional operating and tech savviness and imply that to my company here. And so when you moved, when you made the transition from, you know, primarily residential into more of the commercial real estate, could you talk a little bit about that transition and how did that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, I was pretty fortunate because when I moved to Nashville in 2016, there weren't as many institutional players. So I took a course called CCIM, which is a really great sort of almost like a mini master's program where you take 
pretty high level investing real estate fundamentals. Basically, there's four courses and just dives into how to underwrite deals and different asset classes and how to judge the market and things like that. So that gave me a really good foundation to make the transition for commercial. And then I just built a very professional team sort of centered around more institutional investment. And there's just, frankly, just not a ton of competition here for that. So was able to capitalize pretty quickly. So being a little bit more like newer to the market, you know, what were the, some of the challenges that you had to face as you were merging into a new and different market? Yeah. I mean, again, Nashville is a very friendly place. So I was actually quite surprised. I don't think I could have built the firm to what it is in the amount of time I did in California, just because people just aren't as competitive. They're very friendly and helpful. So I met a really great architect from California that was working on some projects. I met some local players here. So it was just very helpful in that way. I think it was always making the transition into commercials. It's more, you know, of a serious investment space versus the residential side, which tends to be a lot more emotional. I mean, it's still the same process for building and, you know, signing up a general contractor and finding land and whatnot, entitlements, things like that. But I think when I got to Nashville, it was it seemed approachable because it is a lot easier to develop here than in other places like New York or California. Can you share with us a little bit? How did you get started with your first deal? What did that kind of look like? Get started with what? With your first deal in Nashville. My first deal. Yeah. So I was on a run through my neighborhood and I've always kind of centered our investment strategy around what I see is needed and really look at the niche asset classes that are undersupplied. So I thought it was really weird when I moved to the city after living, you know, in San Francisco and New York, like it just seemed weird that there was nothing on the water in Nashville. And they had this riverfront and it's not necessarily, you know, the most gorgeous water there is, but it is on the water and it's in downtown. So I was like, doesn't make sense. There's no living on the water. So I was on a run and I saw a sign that said for sale by owner. And I called and he was actually a developer and he just needed a capital investment. So I ended up partnering with him on my first deal and really kind of understood the ropes that way. I ended up buying him out and taking over the deal where we're selling it now. Actually, it's kind of a fun story as many years later, but it's a very successful project, but I had to take it over. And that's kind of when I didn't really have a choice, but to become a developer and figure it out quickly, redesign the building and get it out of the ground. So as you were on that run and you saw the waterfront property land that you were looking to develop on, I guess what, I mean, we come from a place where, you know, we see water quite often and a lot of the communities here in California, you know, they're built around waterfronts. And so it's very highly, I would say high in demand. There's a lot of people who love those types of communities and stuff like that. But if you didn't see it in Nashville, I guess, how would you know that it would work in that kind of market? And like, what kind of risks were you taking by taking on this type of project? Yeah. I mean, real estate development is probably the riskiest type of real estate investment there is. So there's always going to be a risk, but I just tend to back up my initial thoughts. Like there's always an initial inclination that's just seems kind of like a no brainer to me if I'm from California going, okay, well, People will want to live on the water. There's something desirable and peaceful about that. So I'm going to, and then I just look at the numbers and start studying the market and and seeing what the the comps are and 
some of it has to be a little bit of hunch, but you do have to back it up with numbers. And so that's usually my approach with any market I want to go into or asset classes. Like I'm just gathering the data and looking around and this is what I think it's going to be. And then doing the research to back that up. And so from in terms of the market standpoint, what are some of the different things that you look for that make up a good market? The biggest one is job growth versus cost of living. Like those are the metrics that are very integral to watch as a developer. When I first moved to Nashville, the cost of living was significantly below the uh, national average and job growth was extremely positive. And you had quite a bit of companies moving to Tennessee for the tax treatment and just overall central location and weather and a lot of things. But So that's something I always look for. Like you have to have jobs essentially if you want to do ground up development. And then just, yeah, it's like there's a lot of jobs in New York, but the cost of living is prohibitive to a lot of people. So you have to consider why, what would be a catalyst for people moving here. And that's just only grown since I've started my company. Obviously, we've had a huge influx of people and development. So we've been very fortunate that way. But we look at that. We look at just the cost of not necessarily construction, but the cost of selling. Like if I'm selling a condo, I look at, okay, if this is a comparable product in Miami or San Francisco or Austin or Denver, like look across those markets at similar product types and make sure that I'm not out of line or that it's still compelling to get someone to move to a secondary city. So yeah, those are the main things. And then I have really brilliant analysts and finance people on my team that dive into even, you know, more minute metrics, but. And so also, you know, with development type projects, there's a lot of unknowns that might potentially happen when working on these type of projects. How do you typically hedge against those um, in terms of like maintaining reserves, uh, mitigating the risks that you have to on these different types of projects? Yeah. I mean, the fortunate thing about doing what I do now is the projects are extremely large. And so we typically aren't doing many deals that are less than 40 million or so at this point. And when you get to that level, you're very fortunate to be able to work with very professional GCs and people. It's a lot different from when I was flipping homes and I'm, you know, like talking to the plumber on the job site. So, and there's very sophisticated legal parameters around, you know, fine, like gross maximum price, for example, in a, in a contract with a general contractor now during COVID, that a lot of that's been blown out of the water because <clears throat> of supply constraints and the cost of construction going up. And there's just certain things you can't avoid. Fortunately for us, there's so many people moving here that the demand has increased proportionally. So the increased cost isn't a problem. But you know, the typical way, I guess it's the same process, even as it would be on a doing a house flip, it's just You have to define your scope very clearly, have very competent architects designing things and working with the general contractor the whole time to make sure that what they're drawing is cost effective. And a lot of times the general contractor will have a better idea on how to implement something or do it for cheaper or faster. And so you have to listen to him and have them work together. That's really important is like getting the team to communicate a lot and work together to create the best project at the most cost-effective way to do it. So I think that's what I mean, besides getting a project funded and sold, that's like one of the main functions of being a developer for sure. 
And working with the general contractors, have you and general contractors ever had like two very different ideas on how to approach a certain issue that you guys came across? I mean, ever in my life. Um, (laughs) Fortunate thing for me is I was a general contractor, so I do know the beat, so to say. But at this point in the game, you know, these guys, I mean, I'm I'm a licensed commercial contractor, but they're really much more experienced. And, you know, I don't try to, I do trust the people I work with and I've been fortunate to work with some very competent contractors. And so when we do a project and we bid it out and we select someone, it's usually based on their reputation and competency. So I'm not going to, you know, if they tell me a certain type of engineering is going to be better then I'm going to trust the people I have, I work with and not be like, Oh no, I know because, you know, I, I just, I don't, I'm not at that level on the construction side anymore. Do you utilize any strategies or like upfront conversations with general contractors? Like how do you structure it so that, you know, when you're taking on a project that you guys stay within the timeframe of the expected project timeframe that you were expecting, and then also within the cost that you guys had projected? Yeah. I mean, some things like it's a pretty infamous aspect of construction that there'll always be change orders and extended time. And definitely during COVID, that's been a lot more challenging than previous times in my career because there are real delays that no one can avoid and they're real price increases that are just what the market is. And so you just have to be able to have, when you do a project, there needs to be enough cushion to allow for those things and contingency but in terms of when we go to hire the GCs, when we have a full form um, AIA contract, which is basically like the industry standard for, you know, larger scale, like if you're doing $40 million worth of construction, then you have a lot of legal. I mean, there's, you know, 50, 100 pages of legal that go into ensuring that things are done properly, but you can't avoid the things that are out of anyone's control. So You just have to be able to plan into the budget and not do a project that's so lean it could make it unprofitable. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. And how do you guys prepare for any shifts in the market or potentially downturns? Yeah, when we do our underwriting, we have several scenarios we run. Now, we've been very fortunate because we're in a market where the cap rates have compressed and we have so much growth in Nashville, but most of our even base cases or high cases, we've beat the returns but we just underwrite different scenarios. So we'll go in with a base case, but if we will add in more contingency for time and costs, if something goes wrong and ensure that we're not going to lose money and still make something if if we're going to go through the exercise of doing it. So it's kind of about having a backup plan and enough contingency within your underwriting. 
And for you guys, what's kind of a typical rule of thumb to have enough contingencies to be able to, you know, cover yourselves? On the construction side, it's usually five to 7% contingency on an overall project basis, another five. And then on the sell side, we usually fluctuate like 10% higher or lower. Got it. So Meg, for you, you've built up a, such a strong company. You've done so many different transactions here, especially in Nashville. What has been the biggest challenge that you've had as you've been scaling and growing your business? That's a pretty loaded question because I've dealt with a lot over the last five years. I've been very lucky on the capital raising side. I've had a lot of institutional partners step up. I think that's mainly because I'm in the Nashville market and I'm offering a unique product. But, you know, I mean, there's just different things as you grow. In the beginning, it was more about finding the right partners. As I said, the first partner I tried to have, I had to buy out because he was incompetent. But as I grow, I mean, we were only a couple of people last year. Now I have 11 or 12 on the team and you have to start thinking more about like personnel and having real company policies and you're dealing more with all of your employees is it less about you know the actual projects and so each different level of growth i think has given us different challenges in the beginning the track not having a track record was um, a little bit of a challenge, surprisingly not as big as you'd think it would be because we hadn't done these level of projects and we've gotten quite a few off the ground without having completed a lot. But I think there's always ways and you know ways around it, ways to persevere. If you work with really smart people, there's ways to tackle the challenges. So, so yeah, each phase has been a little bit different, but I think in the beginning, it was more about track record and really, and having enough money to operate. Now we're very profitable. So it's more about how are we going to grow sustainably and how are we going to get in other markets and find enough deals in a market that is extremely not competitive, but just the land's very expensive. So, you know, you want to, you have to be really careful and make sure you're not at the top some cycle. Cause by the time I deliver my product, it's three or four years down the road. And I kind of have to plan for that. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was institutional partners. How is that a little bit different than working with the non-institutions? So we've never worked with individuals or syndicated any deals. A lot of people that first start out kind of do the friends and family pass the hat. And I just never did that, mainly because I just didn't have friends and family like that that I would go to But in my commercial deals. But so it kind of forced me to first capital raise I did. Well, I should say the second, but my first major deal I did for on the commercial side, I did with a private equity fund and that kind of $8 million. So I had to, it forced me to find one person that could write that check. So I wasn't, you know, I mean, raising $50,000 at a time for 8 million would have been a total pain. So I had to find a private equity group. And so that's kind of what launched us more into the private equity side versus like the friends and family syndication way that a lot of people go. And there's pluses and minuses of both. I mean, it's a great model if you can pull that off, but for the level of deal I want to do, it's a lot easier if I'm raising $40 million now or 20 million or something to just get it from one person. So that's why we've decided to go the institutional route. Got it. And if somebody was looking to, you know, start looking at institutional routes, you know, what are some of the things that they typically don't think about when working with institutions? 
you need a very sophisticated team. You know, I keep a, I have an attorney that's been, that's full-time works for me and handles all of our legal side of things. Um, I have a former investment banker we have an analyst. We have a whole team it takes because the expectations are very high. There is a lot more capital available at that level. And it does take a little bit of track record. Like I don't think institutions would fund someone that doesn't have any experience. So it is something you grow into. I just kind of was lucky enough to fast track it by getting a private equity group first that wasn't backed by pension plans. They were backed by individuals. So it was a little bit different. Got it. So Meg, for you and your company, what's next? So the plan is to get to a billion in Nashville before leaving Nashville, but we are launching a platform of our short-term rental condo asset class, which is basically a condo building that you can short-term rent. We're rolling that out into other Southeastern markets um, like St. Pete, Charlotte, Charleston, Savannah, Atlanta. So we're rolling that strategy out. And then our industrial strategy will be slowly moving south towards Alabama and Georgia. So we're just expanding a little bit beyond Nashville, but we're still mainly, you know, 90% of the work we're doing is in Nashville. And I think I love being in Nashville. I'm very vested in the city. I sit on quite a few boards and care about how it will grow healthily and And so our plan is to still stay heavily focused on Nashville, but just scale up our asset sizes. We have a few projects in the work that should be pretty high profile and exciting in the next couple of years. So I think for me, it's about positive growth and growing out the investment management side, which is the fun side of the business. So that's always a goal. Meg, how has real estate investing impacted your life? It is my life. (laughs) It is my life. I mean, I pretty much... Most of the people, you know, I love my team and I love being at my office and the work we're doing and interacting with the community. And I like creating a positive place for people to work and live, obviously, the project. So I don't know other, another way to answer that than say that it is an all-encompassing aspect of my life. It's pretty much the only thing I've ever done, even though I've expanded and grown into it in different ways and managed funds and different aspects of real estate investment, but it's definitely, um, I couldn't see myself in another industry for sure. And so I really feel like I found the right one for me and my goals and the flexibility I want in my life. And so, yeah, that's how I, <laughs> that's what I have to say. And what is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? I think that just always have a backup plan and build in plenty of contingency. I mean, I, probably didn't do that enough when I was younger and I got lucky, but I think it's really important to know, be cognizant of the fact that there are cycles and the music could stop and you don't want to be one of those developers that just ends up going bankrupt because didn't plan enough. So I think for me, it's really about not being emotional about the process and really just observing the facts and separating out those two things. And not being, you know, get overly excited because some things you want to build something amazing that's pretty, which is great, but there's a level of practicality and pragmatism that I've I've learned over the years. And what is one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I think it's that. I think it's an ability to look really, and that sounds very simple, but an ability to 
really observe trends and be opportunistic. And that's something that we really try to do and be and not just say, hey, we build 250 unit multifamily buildings and that's what we do and that's all we do. We've decided to diversify by approach as opposed to geography and just really try to have a good grasp on a market like Nashville and be flexible enough to change your strategy if it's going to be more successful in an application. And so for you, Meg, what kind of tools or techniques have you used that has helped you and your company become more efficient? So we use Asana to track all of our real estate projects because they have projects and then the team, each team member has tasks related to projects. And we use that in the morning on Monday and we go through everyone's, we go through everyone's task for the week. So see what they're going to be up to and doing. And then we go down project by project, make sure we're on track, we're on schedule for getting ready to close. We have a deal meeting and we use Asana for both of those things, which is very organized and efficient. I think it cuts down on a lot of email traffic and calls. Um, So it saves time. And I would say that compared to other companies, we surely are very lean for the volume of real estate development that we do. We're lean for the amount of real estate that we do, but even just development being so much more complicated, we're extremely lean when you compare our project, our team size to the amount, the dollar volume that we're doing, well over half a billion. So I think we do that by having a paperless office and being using Dropbox. We use Slack as another tool that pretty integral. I'm very adamant that people, you know, keep their inboxes clean is something I kind of harp on so that they don't miss emails. And I don't know, it's just a very tightly ran efficient organization for sure. That's something that's important to me. Awesome. Well, Meg, I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, sharing your story with us today. And if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, Meg, where's the best place that they can go? Sure. I have my LinkedIn is monitored and we post updates there every couple of days on all what's happening with all of our projects and check messages there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Meg. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. And thank you for listening to our podcast today brought to you by Bonifest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.